I'm Ayana Contreras, and you are tuned to Vocalo Radio. Up next, a special presentation of Practically Speaking, hosted by Audra Wilson. In the following episode, you'll hear a conversation about polyculturalism, about the influence of Africans in Mexico, both culturally and otherwise. And we'll also hear the story of Galen Alcarez, a Southside native who stands squarely in both worlds, part Mexican and part Black. We handpicked these stories for today because we feel as though it speaks to the moment that we're in in the current divisions between our black and brown communities here in Chicago. We hope it draws attention to all we have in common. This is Practically Speaking. I'm Audra Wilson. There's a much deeper connection between Blacks and Latinos in the United States than challenging life circumstances. More often than not, they are related by blood. In many ways, Blacks and Latinos are not necessarily two distinct categories or cultures. For example, the presence of Africans in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and Cuba are very well documented. So it's not surprising that Blacks and Latinos have far more in common than we may realize or acknowledge. I had the question, what does it mean to be black and Latino in the United States? What it means to be black and Latino in the United States is often uh, very, very confusing enough for debate. Um, But neither black communities nor Latino communities want to recognize the Afro-Latino often. And so for for those folks who have uh, their racial identity in both places, it can sometimes be troubling. Um, And that's why Juan Flores and Miriam Jimenez edited the book Afro-Latino Reader so that we can begin to discuss these issues a little bit more. That's Dr. Pancho McFarlane. Pancho is the Associate Professor of Sociology at Chicago State University and joined me to talk more about the Afro-Latino experience in the United States. So, Pancho, tell us a little bit more about your area of study. Okay. Um, I earned a Ph.D. in sociology from the University of Texas, in, and I was studying at that, at that time um, the indigenous revolution in Mexico of 1994. And when I got to the United States, uh, when, when I got back from, from doing that, what I learned was I really needed to concentrate my efforts on something I knew very well. And what I knew very well was, was hip-hop culture. I grew up um, listening to uh, hip-hop music and breakdancing and doing these kinds of things. And I wanted to explore that a little bit more, uh, especially as a person of Mexican descent doing hip-hop in this country. So I started uh, trying to understand what, what it was that attracted me to this music in a social scientific way. Watch me now. Uh, that resulted in um, a couple of books on the subject of Mexican-Americans and hip-hop. So I'm going to talk to you more about that, that your music connection because I know it's really fascinating. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about just this Afro-Latino identity. Um, you actually sent me an article in, in preparation for our conversation just to, to get some background. And in the article, I read something. Um, it was a term that was used called polycultural, which I thought was a really interesting way to describe Afro-Latinos as opposed to multicultural. But what does it mean to be polycultural? Polycultural suggests that all of us and all of these distinct cultures, what we think are distinct cultures like 
African American or Mexican American. All of the all of us are very mixed up, and we've had a lot of influences over many generations and many centuries. And it is probably a much more accurate way of understanding ourselves than trying to squeeze ourselves into boxes that often don't fit. So we ask ourselves, you know, I ask myself in, in, in my first book, well, why am I attracted to this music that is supposed to be black? And w- after doing a bunch of research about it, what I found was, well, the, the reason why is because there's a great deal of black or African influence in Mexican culture. So it, it made sense, even if what I was told as a young person about being a Mexican didn't quite fit um, the, the music that I was listening to. So you talk about the, the, the presence of African culture in Mexico. So it's interesting because we hear a lot about African culture in places like Cuba or the Dominican Republic mm-hmm. or Puerto Rico or places where you can see darker-skinned people um, who are Spanish-speaking. But I wasn't, you know, as someone who thinks of herself as fairly enlightened, I, I didn't realize that there was actually a lot more African influence in places like Mexico. So, for example, um, uh, Costa Chica or, or Veracruz, where they have whole populations of, of Mexicans who had been there through slavery for about, four, about 400 years. <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit more about the African influence in Mexico? Sure. Um, One thing that might surprise people is that during the Spanish colonial period, there were actually more Africans in Mexico than there were Spaniards. Yet we tend to think of ourselves as, uh, that is Mexicans, as Spanish and indigenous people. And um, these folks were brought to the the, uh, Caribbean coast of Mexico uh, from Cuba and started establishing colonies and, and started influencing Mexican society um, in the 16th century. So we're talking the 1500s, so there's a very long history of this. Um, and in what happens in Mexico, we, we, might, we don't even recognize this because we, tend to, again, tend to think of uh, ourselves as Spanish and indigenous. But what happens in Mexico is a lot of the things that we see as Mexican are come to us from our African ancestors, um, things like mariachi and, and certain kinds of foods and things. Um, the reason why we don't see this is because uh, there was a, a push to, at, right after the Mexican Revolution of 1910 through 1917 to try to define who Mexicans were. And the people who were in charge, and namely there's one person you, you will keep hearing his name uh, when, you, when you research this. His name is Jose Vasconcelos. And as a minister of education, he established the idea that uh, Mexicans were a mestizo culture, that is a mixed culture, mixed of Spanish and indigenous, and that new group of people, what he called La Raza Cosmica, um, was this new transformational, very important um, group of people that we'd never seen before. It was the best of both the Spanish and the indigenous. And what happened when he started uh, exclaiming that and, and wrote his book, and it ends up getting uh, becoming part of the... Um, official narrative of Mexican history, what he did was he, he left out the African. And so now when the story gets told about who we are, Africans are, are made invisible. Wow, so he almost erased the whole African piece from... Yes, and in Hernandez Cuevas's book, uh, he actually, one chapter he calls the, uh, the erased Africanness of Mexican icons. He uses that, those exact terms. Um, because it was it was exactly that it was sort of a whitewashing I don't know if that's the right word of <laughs> of uh, or, or erasing out of Africans from Mexican history.
I'm speaking with Dr. Pancho McFarland. Pancho is the Associate Professor of Sociology at Chicago State University. Um, I, I speak about Latino culture in a, in a broader sense, not just including Mexico, but, but especially thinking about Mexico, we want to acknowledge the influence, African influence in music. Sometimes we'll acknowledge it in physical traits and appearances when we're talking about certain countries. But yet there still exists a lot of racism between, um, if we're talking about the United States, African Americans and Latino populations, and in particular Mexicans. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so what, what do you think is, is the root of that? Well, I think there's two things. One is, again, um, this uh, erasing of Africanness from our uh, from our history as, as Mexican people so that we see Africans through the lens of the media, for example. And so, and so we don't know that, in fact, we, we have African culture, and I don't like to use this term, but African blood. Uh, we don't know this. And secondarily, uh, black people in the United States don't know it either um, and don't, un don't know the history of the relationships between Mexicans and, and, and people of uh, African descent in this country. For example, the... Um, uh, the number of thousands of escaped slaves who went to Mexico instead of going north. And uh, for a very long period, um, Mexicans welcoming um, the African population into Mexico. Uh, so we don't know that. But secondarily, and, and, and at least as importantly, is that the relationships between Mexicans and, 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 and African Americans in this country is often dictated by the, the dominant group in this country. So that for example, one of, often there's, there's conflict because we're, we're fighting over a limited number of resources. Right. Mm -hmm. um, in, in addition, you know, just the very notion of the idea of race gets in the way sometimes so that we don't, can't see each other as, um, as related in some, in some broader way because we, can only, we can't get beyond skin color or hair texture or something like this. And we see stereotypes of each other so that, you know, as I said, and, you know, Mexicans see the stereotypes that all the rest of us see about African-Americans, um, you know, uh, black men as criminals and, and the black welfare queen and those kinds of things. And black people see the same types of stereotypes of Mexicans that we all see. Um, the illegal immigrant uh, primarily is the, the main trope of, of how we understand Mexicans. They're taking our jobs and doing all these kinds of things. So there's any number of structural barriers in front of us that don't allow us to come together. And then there's some, some other barriers like the, the media and stereotypes and those kinds of things. Now, you have a really interesting life story because in some ways you are the embodiment of uh, this polyculturalism. You are of Mexican descent, mm -hmm. but you have black children. Mm -hmm. So That's tell right. us a little bit more That's about right. that. Well, my, my investigation into these things begins... Um, at the time when I become aware of, of race. And that's probably when I was a, a child, probably when I visited my, my cousins in, in New Mexico and Colorado who were much darker than I. Um, and so I was made very aware very early on that I wasn't ex exactly like them. They were all of Mexican descent, and, and my father happened to be Irish. Um, so I always sort of knew that there was more to being Mexican than what everybody said, the stereotypical um, look and idea. And so, um, but, but, but nonetheless, I didn't, um, it was never reinforced, certainly in school. And, and I began to study um, people of Mexican descent in the United States, or what we call Chicanos, in the same way that others had in the, in the past as a distinct racial group. Um, but as I learned more and more, I found that, there was, that the Mexican population is a very, very heterogeneous population. It's a very diverse population. We come from different places, different classes, uh, different racial backgrounds and characteristics. Um, 
And so then I was able to see that I actually kind of do fit into this. There are other people like me who are who are Mexican. And um, and as I kept investigating this, this this idea of being a Mexican in a sort of some traditional manner became less and less important to me. And that allowed me to open up and have relationships with a lot of different people. Um, so it was I, I want to give that gift to other people as well and say, look, you don't have to be bound by some stereotypical notion of race. And that allowed me to um, find kinship with black people um, and other people of color. And um, and then that led me to um, date black people and that led me to have children with black people. And so I have three black children. Um, they're of mixed race. And, um, you know, it's 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 an interesting dynamic to try to figure out. Um, who we are as as a family in this in this situation where people still don't recognize um, multiraciality as something that is just sort of a natural and normal kind of thing. Now, one thing I want to ask you: this is just having a little bit of fun. You talked about really being involved in, in hip hop culture and, mm-hmm. and, and dancing, um, um, break dancing, and that sort of thing when you're growing up. I'm curious as to the reaction that people had when they saw you, especially not knowing where you fit in, because right. for our listeners who can't see you, you're of Mexican descent, but you are fair. Yes. Um, so it wouldn't be immediately apparent, um, necessarily, I guess, what's the term of art? Racially ambiguous? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. But uh, what was the reaction to people when you... Well, the reaction was mostly like, you know, that's a black thing. You know, Mexican, we don't do that. Right. And that's the kind of thing that I got a lot in those of us who were of Mexican descent, who were involved in the culture. And again, it seemed very natural to us. Um, a, a lot of us got this, and, and we simply rejected that notion. Uh, and again, it, it, that, through that rejection, it allowed us to open up our identities and, and who, we, who we are right? and our understandings of who we are. to a special presentation of Practically Speaking, hosted by Audrey Wilson, here on Vocalo Radio. We handpicked these stories for today because we feel as though it speaks to the moment that we're in in the current divisions between our black and brown communities here in Chicago. We hope it draws attention to all we have in common. You're listening to Practically Speaking on Vocalo.org. I'm Audrey Wilson. I'm speaking with Dr. Pancho McFarland. Pancho is the Associate Professor of Sociology at Chicago State University. So, Pancho, I want to ask you a little bit more about um, music, uh, because we know that's a, a, a passion of yours. Mm-hmm. So, if there's one thing that unites people, it's, it's music. Uh, it unites people from different backgrounds and different cultures, it's music. Um, as, again, doing more research about, about talking about the um, Afro-Latino experience, I was just so fascinated by the African influence and not the most obvious ways. I mean, we know, um, like, whether it's salsa, merengue, uh, cumbia, bachata, all these different sorts of musical genres where we know there's very clear and undeniable African influence. We talk about that. Um, I was actually surprised that there is um, African influence, for example, in more traditional Mexican music, um, I was reading about a an artist named Tonya La Negra, mm. 
um, from Veracruz, who was very f- famous for singing uh, more traditional Mexican music like boleros and, 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 and the like, and it was very celebrated and a, clearly a black woman. So I just thought that was kind of fascinating. It, well, it, it is given the, given our again the invisibility of the African presence, but it makes a lot of sense if you understand Mexican music from um, a long historical view of Mexican music, whereby that some of the musics that we again tend to think of as being iconically Mexican—that is, you know, this is you, you walk into a Mexican restaurant, you can hear this music playing, like mariachi, for example. Um, that music was uh, influenced by Africans. It was it's a very much an African music. And when you go into, so people know this, so I guess I can give this example. When you go into Mexican restaurants, sometimes they'll have the mariachi band, and the band will be, um, they'll have a certain dress on, um, a traje, uh, the, the charro suit. It's a little like a cowboy suit that you see. According to Marco Polo Hernandez Cuevas in his book, the first to wear that were Afro-Mexicans, people of African descent. You might also see, people might also be familiar with um, ballet folklorico, that is sort of the dances you would see, um, traditional Mexican dances from various regions of Mexico that you see sometimes, especially around the Cinco de Mayo and things like that. And there is a particular uh, dance um, that goes along with a a dress that the women wear, a very colorful flower flower dress called the China Foblana. The China Foblana uh, literally means, is, is sort of a slang term for a black woman from Puebla. China is, does not mean, in, in this case, does not mean from China, but it means um, someone with tightly curled hair, right? So kinky or, um, I guess I can't use that word, kinky hair, right? <laughs> tightly coiled hair. Um, and, and and people don't know that cause, because what we've seen in, in ballet folklorico is that we don't see black people, black women dancing ballet folklorico. We see lighter skinned women. And we don't um, know that history, so we just assume, oh, this is something that we've been doing in Puebla for a long time. Well, we have. It was Africans who sort of developed that. Puebla, um, there's a lot of mining in the area. A lot of uh, black labor was in it was in the mines. So let's talk a little bit more contemporarily about music, okay. because you said your background is in hip-hop. Yes. Um, and we love hip-hop. <laughs> but... Uh, Tell me a little bit more about, you wrote an essay about Chicano rap roots. And so can you tell us, what are you speaking about when you say Chicano rap roots? Why is that, how is that pertinent to what we're talking about? Uh, I wrote this article because there was a call for papers in the journal Kalalu. It's a black literary uh, and arts journal. And they they wanted to have a a hip-hop edition, uh, issue. 
And so I decided, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this because this is something that, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about this stuff of polyculturalism and, and it hasn't been widely discussed up to that point and certainly not in, in the pages of Callaloo. So I submitted an, an article and they, they published it and, and the drive behind the article was to examine a couple of different uh, uh, hip-hop artists of Mexican descent and talk about how their roots are, the, the different elements of their music that can be traced back to African roots. Okay. So, um, you know, the different rhythms and, and the, the sounds and things like that and, and, um, and beyond. And, and, and in some ways, how not is it simply just African roots, but it's the roots of the music or the style come from a combination of Mexicans and, and Africans in the United States or black Americans in the United States. And so that was the goal of that, was to suggest that two things. One, there's this music out there, out here that people of Mexican descent are doing or Chicanos are doing. And two, that this music has a lot of um, influence of, uh, as a result of um, our interaction with black Americans, especially where it develops in Los Angeles. So I'm thinking of things like, let's see, Cypress Hill. Cypress Hill. So so in the, in the essay, for example, um, I talk about Kid Frost was one of the first person to have, the first person of Mexican descent to have a national album. It was called Hispanic Causing Panic in 1990. And uh, one of the songs, so when I'm writing about him, I talk about some of the backing tracks he used, or for example, Teddy Pendergrass and Mary <laughs> Wells and, 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 and these folks. So a lot of these old, uh, or Teddy Pendergrass, not so old, but certainly Mary Wells, a little bit older, uh, this old, what we call oldies, uh, Chicanos have been listening to it for a long time, and, and Robin Kelly suggests in a different article that if it wasn't for Chicanos, the sort of oldies would have gone away because they're the only ones really listening to it. And it, and it, I remember as a kid, you know, all the cholos, that's what they were listening to. And people in low and low riders would, would sit and they'd listen to this type of music. And then they just started, when we get to the 1980s, they start rapping to it. Um, so they were listening to black music and they were hearing this new, this new contemporary genre of, of uh, hip-hop coming from the East Coast. And they decided to put their own version to it, mixing it with, you know, their own sensibilities as people of Mexican descent, but also our own understandings of, of music that, might, that our parents or grandparents might have been playing. And a lot of the stuff became very popular. Some of it did. There was, a, in, in certainly in the early 1990s, there was a, a rush on um, rappers of Mexican descent. And so a bunch of people got signed to deals, and, and some of them cut albums and made a little bit of money. After the early 1990s, it kind of goes away, but what happens is there's a great underground scene that develops. That, that um, Part of the reason it goes away is some of those guys got um, really burned by, their, by the major labels and felt like they got used and didn't want to go that way anymore. And so there's an extremely vibrant, very interesting underground um, Chicano hip-hop community that, um, that I write about in my second book. But though some of them have gone away, I, the door has been opened now for, for newer artists, right? Mm, certainly. So, so, so some of those barriers have, have already been broken. Mm-hmm. How about the role of hip-hop in helping to sort of bridge the divide between um, black and Latino communities, in particular black and Mexican communities? What do you see the role of hip-hop? Uh, well, one of the, the most important things about this is, is language, um, what we find in, in hip-hop, whether it's black kids doing it or, or uh, Mexican-American kids doing it or even Asian kids doing it, is a common understanding, common language. So they're able to speak to one another um, in ways that uh, perhaps our older generations of Mexicans, uh, African-Americans, and Asians weren't able to do. Um, so the music certainly uh, brings people together. There's a song I write about in my new book called La, P- La Prueba, and it's, it's testing. It's, it's like he's saying, testing, testing, one, two, three. And what he does is it's a song that is a translation song from um, Chicano slang to black hip-hop slang. 
and uh, they, he says we say these kinds of things, and in black and in, in the black community they say these kinds of things. And so there's a ongoing dialogue um, between the between the communities. It doesn't mean everything is um, perfect, but it certainly it, it means that there is a um, there's something recognizable at least. And do you see that, um, especially now with this this kind of growing multiculturalism within within the United States, do you see that with younger generations and more intermixing culturally in in all different ways that it's the dialogue's getting easier that there's more bridges are being. It's 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 very difficult because at the same time that um, again it's it's really starting with young people. At the same time that young people are coming together in a lot of different ways and creating co-creating culture together just like they co-created culture in terms of um, something like low riding or zoot suiting for that matter. It was, you know, those were two examples of blacks and Latinos coming together and creating something. Or if we go on the East Coast, we can talk about Boogaloo and blacks and Puerto Ricans coming together and creating new music. Um, so at the same time that that's happening and, and there's more intense interaction between the between these two groups, which really aren't two separate groups, but nonetheless, um, that there's a, 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 any number of structural barriers that are being put up as well. So again, the the, the problems that um, that Black and Latino communities have with one another that are created not by them but by by structural barriers, they're getting worse. Um, fighting over educational resources or jobs, for that matter. Um, those are the two main ones. Probably other kinds of things like housing as well, and and um, these kinds of things. Um, the welfare things, and we don't call it welfare anymore, but, you know, the entitlement programs and things like that. There's, so so there's, there's structural barriers that are keeping this from happening at the same time that there are cultural barriers that are, that are um, creating a, this new, um, new opportunities for communication and dialogue and exchange. So to the extent that you said there's almost this tension between the cultural that is uniting versus all the kind of uh, the structural barriers that are, are continuing to keep us apart... Mm-hmm. It, in your sort of professorial role, you know, what are some of your suggestions about how we're going to be able to, to unite on that level? Well, I think that I think one of the things is we have to understand understand ourselves uh, in a much broader way, um, and in, in understanding things like the history of relations between Mexicans and Africans, um, in, in both in Mexico and the United States. I think that's that can go a long way with un- toward helping us understand ourselves and what we have for a long time described as the other. Um, so th- that's one thing. But also to, rec- to recognize that um, often the, the things that seem like barriers are, are really artificial and, e- and erected outside of our own communities. So, you know, the unemployment crisis in, you know, for, for, for black, many black folks, and um, especially black men, that's not is a result of, uh, you know, Mexicans taking jobs. It's a result of the way that the, um, the global economic system is structured and the way, that, the way that the United States is structured so that good jobs have gone away. Right? Uh, if we can understand these, these, these things, we can come together. Um, and we can also understand better and more intimately and more deeply how, um, how many of the challenges are, uh, are shared and how many of the triumphs are also uh, as a result of um, coming together. So how about for your children? What is your hope uh, for your children, both in in, in creating a a strong sense or instilling a strong sense of pride in both of their their, their cultural heritages and and just having a a positive future? Yeah. I think that, you know, um, I... 
just overall, I'm a, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm a scholar, so it's important that you have a lot of information and then, and then you um, base your decisions on as much information as you can. So I expose my children to lots and lots of things, and not only just things African or things indigenous or Mexican, but just a, a broad range of things, um, so that they, they can under, understand um, the contributions of a, a large group of people, and not you know, and not be so chauvinistic to say, "Well, this is simply black, or this is simply Mexican," or um, but to, but to recognize themselves as part of the human family for one. And I start there. Um, but secondly, to, you know, to really understand that some of the things that are denigrated about each of these cultures, we should maybe take pride in. Um, I really work in, my work is now, after I've done this, this hip-hop work, I'm doing a lot more work in um, urban agriculture and, and doing, and as an activist, doing community gardening and things. And often we find that things that are, you know, black, like black foods, collards and okra and these kinds of things are denigrated as, as you know, slave food or something like this. And what I like to tell my students is, no, this is the genius of being African. This is, this is how these folks survived, and this is how sort of they developed this over centuries and centuries so that we have a, a better understanding of, of who we are, a deeper understanding um, that we weren't, we weren't just slaves. We were people who innovated and survived, or you know, we're, we weren't simply victims. Um, and the same thing could be, could be said for how I teach them about uh, Mexican culture, when I teach them about corn, beans, and squash and how we grow them together. This is, this is genius. The, these, your ancestors came up with this. And not simply to, to be prideful, to be, but to, be, to understand the contributions that everybody makes um, and, to, and then to hold on to them. And so to the extent that we, that redefinition, because as we've talked about mm-hmm. in, in, in previous episodes of this show and uh, how things that we've, we've, especially as people of color, have, have taken to be very negative because of the way that it's been defined and how we sort of redefine and, and, and put it back into historical context and let people understand that, no, there's nothing negative about this. This is a positive thing. It sounds yeah. like that's exactly what you're trying yeah. to do. Exactly right. You know, I hear, you know, with my kids, I mean, this is what started the question, um, with my kids, I know they hear some of the same things that I hear in, in our community. I live in a black community. And I hear people saying things, that, denigrating things that are black. And I said, well, let's, let's talk about, you know, what that practice is. So, for example, this is one you might hear, and some of you might say this. Uh, you know, I hate when they barbecue out on the front porch. <laughs> it is so ghetto. And what people might not realize is that's an old African practice. And what that barbecuing outside in the front does is it allows people to come together as community. If you go in the backyard, it's much more private. That's a, that's a different way of understanding who you are and your relationship to other, other people. So I hear this, and then I gotta, you know, it gives me an opportunity to teach whoever I'm around, but you know, it's certainly my children, that you don't have to be you know, ashamed of somebody that in your neighborhood who is barbecuing on the front. Or if you want to barbecue on the front, it's a perfectly okay thing because this is what your ancestors did, and this is why they did it this way. You know? um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of other examples like this, but those are, those are um, the kinds of uh, opportunities that I like to, to use to teach my kids about themselves and, and others. So, Pancho, thank you so much. This has been really very enlightening for me. Um, So, again, that's Dr. Pancho McFarland. He is the Associate Professor of Sociology at Chicago State University. And I'm Audra Wilson. This is Practically Speaking.
You're listening to a special presentation of Practically Speaking on Vocalo Radio, hosted by Audra Wilson. Coming up next, it's Audra's conversation with a South Side of Chicago native whose experience of being half Mexican and half Black felt especially timely to us today, thinking about all the chasms between Black and Brown communities here right now. We hope it draws attention to all we have in common. I had the opportunity to meet Gaylon. We had a very interesting conversation about her background um, when I asked her about her last name, Alcaraz, at which point she told me that she was both black and Mexican. We did a segment on Afro-Latinos, and specifically we, we focused on the African presence in Mexico. Polycultural suggests that all of us and all these distinct cultures, what we think are distinct cultures like African-American or Mexican-American, all, all of us are very mixed up and we've had a lot of influences over many generations and many centuries. And it is probably a much more accurate way of understanding ourselves than trying to squeeze ourselves into boxes that often don't fit. So that's the other reason why I, I thought to talk to Gaylon and her experiences being um, a woman of black and Mexican descent growing up in Chicago and just to, to learn a little bit more about uh, how, what your life has been like. So I'm here with Gaylon in the studio. So Gaylon, let me ask you, first and foremost, when we were talking um, before we started recording, you were talking a bit about your grandfather who came from Michoacan, Mexico. So tell me a little bit more about him because you had this very, uh, I don't know, interesting, sentimental look in your eyes when you were talking about him. Yeah. So my grandfather was directly from Mexico. He came to America um, for a better life. What's so interesting is, as I look at the debates around immigration right now, I think he would be the one that Pete, they would send back. And it's, it's, it's kind of profound to kind of think about that. You know, my grandfather came to America with like 50 cents in his pocket and to make a way and, and to start a family. Um, he spoke very, very choppy English. Um, he spoke Spanish. He listened to his news in Spanish. But all his children assimilated, so no one else spoke Spanish in the family. He was a short man, um, very quiet, but very strong. He worked for the railroads. Him and my grandma, we call him Big Mom, Big Daddy. They had 16 children, and, and 12 of them survived. You know, I sometimes I would find myself, you know, like in the dining room. I could see, like, into their bedroom from the dining room, and I would just watch him, and he was just very quiet and unassuming, just a, just like a gentle presence. Vida Como tu imagen no se borra del recuerdo que dejaste para mí Vida Como tus labios no se borran de los míos y te llevo junto a mí He had like treats in his closet that he would give to us and he would always tell us not to tell Big Ma and he would give us, it was like fruit back there in the back of the closet and that stuff was like real treats because when you have like a lot of kids or a lot of family over there, you don't put all that stuff out. 
So it was like cookies. Remember those mama cookies that was like three, four dollar in a package? <laughs> he would have those in the back of the closet and fruit, and he would give us quarters. And he would motion for us to come into the room. And we wouldn't all go in at the same time. I mean, he would do it, like, different times for different ones. So you didn't know who was actually getting stuff. So you thought you was, like, the only one, like, the special one that was getting stuff. But, I mean, you you know now that you weren't. You couldn't have been. Vida, ya no te empeñes en lograr que mi presencia no sea parte de tu ser. Vida. Ven que te espero como loco, como un ciego que sin ti no quiere ver. When I think back to the memories, his eyes look very sad to me. Um, and it looked like, I mean, when he would listen to his news and listen to his stations in Spanish, um, he just looked sad. It looked like um, he missed where he was from. So tell me more about that because you mentioned that that he came here, his English is broken, but yet none of his children learned Spanish. He didn't, did he not want them to learn Spanish or was he concerned about them being able to fit in? I really don't know. I don't know. And that's not, you know, we've never had that conversation in our family. Um, they just never spoke Spanish. And I don't, you know, what I would assume now just based on, you know, you know, learning and reading and so forth is maybe, you know, then... You would you would be marginalized if you were like in public school systems and so forth, and you talked like that. You know, you would be isolated and marginalized and and um, disciplined and so forth. Back then, right. you would be, and so maybe that was the reason. And that's not un- too uncommon with a lot of immigrant experiences from all around the, exactly. the, the world. People being told that in order to fit in, they they don't want to have an accent or exactly. sound like they're different. Exactly. So I would have to assume that that played a big role in it. But what about some of the other traditions that he did carry that have nothing to do with language? I'm assuming food, music, other things. So, um, like at Christmas and Thanksgiving time, um, we had tamales. Um, We always ate beans and rice. He grew his own peppers in the garden. Um, I, I just, I remember... They drank. <laughs> they were. They drank alcohol. I, I remember the house was always full of people, and it was a small house. It was interesting because they stayed on 76th and Loomis. They still have the house over there. Um, my uncle stays in it now. This Mexican family, like in the middle of like 76 and Loomis, and the way they dressed, it was kind of odd. And 76 and Loomis being a predominantly black, yeah, predominantly um, black area, and um, and it was just like a lot of family gatherings. It was it was always food there. Um, good food. <laughs> good food. You're right. And you know, Christmas was a big thing, um, and Christmas Eve was a big thing. My parents weren't married, so, you know, there was some dynamics around that, but my mother always made sure that, you know, I had a relationship and, and, you know, took me around. And your mother being African-American. Exactly. And so still was very much um, mindful of cultures and tradition. Right. But tell me more about being um, of its bicultural, 
you know, biracial heritage um, and some of your experiences? Because this is something that you embrace very proudly. But as we were talking before, you you said that not everyone necessarily was as embracing of this as, as you have been. Right. Um, so I'll lead up to that part. But when I was little, it was kind of odd for me to be in that neighborhood. And I've always been like a loner. So I would, you know, be by myself a lot and I would just observe. Um, And it was odd to watch the way like my dad and my uncles dressed and be in that neighborhood. It was, I don't know quite how to put it into words, but I felt conscious of that. And I felt like they look weird to me. How did they dress? How did they dress differently than everyone else in the neighborhood? Well, I mean, they, you know, had these wide leg pants and these polyester pants and the wide belts and, you know, these, um, you know, I say Mexican shirts, but, you know, I'm sure other people probably wore them, but they were just like kind of weird looking shirts. I mean, they they looked weird to me. And, you know, I I just I thought it was just it was it was kind of odd. I always thought the people were talking about us. So they in the way that they dressed, they stuck out from other folks in this predominantly black neighborhood. Right. They okay. did They did stick out. All of them, my aunts and my uncles, married black African-Americans. Hmm. So that that is interesting. Um, that's, uh, you know, all we grew up with. But leading up to, you know, now, I do have cousins that don't identify as Latina or Latino. And You know, I've heard from other people, you know, other people in my family who have said, you know, so-and-so say they're not, they're not Mexican. You know, they're black. And it's always, I'm always confused by that because I'm like, how can that be? Have you asked them directly? (laughs) I haven't asked them directly. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's not like a lot of discussion around this experience in my family. It's almost like it's ignored or something. So, Gaylon, you said something when you were talking about, again, going back to some of your family members, perhaps not wanting to embrace their Mexican side. And and it makes me think that when we talk about authenticity, because we've had this problem within the black community, but what does it mean to be authentically black? When you're talking to fellow Latinas, I mean, do you get that sense, too, about what does it mean to be authentically Mexican? Mm-hmm. Especially because, again, people aren't seeing you, but looking at you, you are someone who definitely, I love this term of art, racially ambiguous. You could look black to black people, but you could definitely look like a Latina to, to uh, among other Latinas. But I do wonder, how do people respond you know, about being authentically Mexican? And do you think maybe that's what the experience that perhaps some of your family members have had as not being authentic enough? I, I, that could possibly, you know, be it. I, last week, a Latina um, who knows that I'm Latina still said in the midst of our conversation, you know, you as a black woman or something like that around that. And, I, you know, I just let it slip because, you know, slip past because I'm like, you know, I you, what can you do? You can't beat people over the head. You know, and I'm not. You know, I know who I am. Um, but I'm thinking that, you know, maybe... My cousins, my aunts, my uncles did go through that. How about the language piece, though? Sometimes in determining what it means to be authentic, 
people judge authenticity by whether you speak whatever language it may be. Mm -hmm. In this case, now we're talking about Spanish. Mm -hmm. Are there some people that question your authenticity because you don't speak Spanish? People have asked me, why don't I speak Spanish if I'm Mexican? I'm like, you know how many Mexicans that don't speak Spanish? (laughs) You know, and it's so many, you know, generations assimilate. You know, and that's, I mean, that's how it is. If, if you know, my grandfather didn't teach his children and his, his children didn't teach his, their children, how would we learn it? Exactly. You know, um, we couldn't, you know, he spoke choppy English and he wouldn't speak to us in Spanish like, you know, going on and on and on. We understood him, but it was a very heavy accent. So I think people do judge you if if you don't speak it and they think, Okay, are you really Mexican? But it really shows a lot of people's ignorance around race and ethnicity and identity. It makes people uncomfortable when they can't put you in a place where they feel like they can operate from. So if they can't put you in this box and feel comfortable with that, then that totally throws them off. And I think that's why they try to place certain labels and certain things on you, because that helps them cope. it though I embrace it and my children know I am very upfront and open about that I observe you know certain things like I have an altar at home um, I observe um, Dia de los Muertos um, you know I observe things like that and you know a lot of my cousins don't and I you you mentioned that and it's it, I find that so Interesting, and I'm concerned about that because, especially nowadays, in this generation where multiculturalism is something, or as we talked about last week, polyculturalism is something that is so much more common. Right. That you would think people are freer now to actually really acknowledge the fact that they have this different sort of heritage or background or combination of of backgrounds instead of feeling this this need to to be one or the other. Right, and I, you know, I'm I'm not really sure. Um, why you know why that is um yeah i'm not sure i i can't even really you know i i have i i think we just need to have a conversation about it you know we probably should have a conversation about it but the family does not even talk about that mexican experience now how about in your kind of in your activism and or your other life because you you speak a lot publicly um on all different sorts of issues have you had other occasions to talk more about your kind of your bicultural heritage and celebrate what's, that so what's so interesting is um you know i i i celebrate you know all parts of me because you know like the black community like growing up in black communities they always knew i was something but they always called me puerto rican which I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not Puerto Rican, you know. Now, I can go in Pilsen and Little Village now, and people speak to me in Spanish. 
I guess they can. They, di- they don't know any different. Right. They speak to me in Spanish. All the time that I'm in New York, people speak to me in Spanish. But if I'm like, you know, in a, you know, black community, it's like I'm, you know, just, a, you know, I'm a sister, you know. So it's just, it's interesting to sort of observe it. But I try not to limit myself around other people's ideas and their thoughts. I try to make sure that, you know, I don't live inside a box. I don't color inside the lines. I live freely and fully. And is this what you've taught your your children and your, can I say, grandchildren? Yes. Which is shocking oh, my, to say because oh, people are looking at you, but they would never imagine that you have a no, they don't almost imagine four-year-old it. grandchild. Yes, my baby. Um, but this yes. is what you try to teach them. Yes. I mean... My my daughter is more open to it. My son doesn't really, really talk about it. I mean, I don't think he's not opposed or anything like that, but he doesn't really talk about it. My daughter embraces it. I mean, everybody that she sees, you know, if she's like, you know, one of her coworkers is from Mexico, she goes, oh, my grandpa's from there, you know, and she'll start talking about that. And he's like, your grandpa's from there. And so then she'll say, you know, where it is. So she really, really embraces it. Yeah, but I definitely, you know, want you know, my children and my grandchildren to know, to know that um, it's a good thing. Absolutely. Vida Como tu imagen no se borra del recuerdo que dejaste para mí Vida Como tus labios no se borran de los míos Y te llevo junto a mí Quiero seguir así Pienso que has de volver Que nada cambiará Nuestro cariño aquel Que tú regresarás Cansada de sufrir Cansada de luchar Por olvidar Ya no te empeñes en lograr que mi presencia no sea parte de tu ser Vida Ven que te espero como loco, como un ciego que sin ti no quiere ver No tardes más mi amor No tardes en llegar Siente el corazón que ya no puedo más y no quiero morir sabiendo que los dos debemos adorarnos hasta el fin. Vida. I'm Audra Wilson, and this is Practically Speaking. Practically Speaking is produced by Ayana Contreras. 